context for the study of national security understood in the global context. And you'll see faculty uh, all around the room, actually, who work here, but also teach. All of us teach on campus. Um, and then uh, use Mershon resources to run research projects on issues related to the use of force and diplomacy around the world, or the ideas and beliefs that are central to security questions here and in the Middle East and in Africa and elsewhere, or on law and institutions that are designed to manage conflict or put diverse and plural societies back together. And we're really keen to involve the best of our undergraduate students in our research projects and have you involved in our activities at Mershon. And there's some blue books outside on the table, and I invite you all to pick one up if you haven't yet and find our website. And while this is the end for this academic year, next year uh, we'll do more, and you're always welcome. And we're going to try with Dennis to do a few things every year for just the collegium students, which is uh, this event. And so uh, you're not only welcome, uh, I hope you'll be active participants after Mr. Hurley has uh, spoke and you can talk to him. Our guest today, uh, Michael Hurley, actually is an attorney. He began as a trial lawyer in Minneapolis, and he's gone a long way since there. He's spent now more than 20 years in the Central Intelligence Agency. He's held a variety of different managerial and analytic uh, positions, both at the headquarters and a number of tours of duty. In the late 1990s, uh, again in 2000, he was detailed to the National Security Council where he was the director for Balkan affairs. He advised the president and others on our policy in the Balkans. After 9-11, uh, his career took a, a different shift. He became the director of the task force on counterterrorism. He's served three tours of duty in Afghanistan uh, since 9-11. And when the 9-11 Commission was formed, he was detailed to the commission uh, to take responsibility for the part of the history that would look at the history of U.S. counterterrorism. Uh, he led a team, one of the principal three teams, the public discussion of the commission, but he can tell us more in detail. Uh, he was a principal author of most, many parts of the report. The report, as you know, uh, not only has had a big impact in the uh, policy world, it was, no, it was nominated as a book of the year. Uh, he organized the public hearings of the highest level officials in the United States, including Condoleezza Rice and others, and <clears throat> has been a, a principal spokesman now uh, for the commission and is doing a national tour, many national tours actually, uh, to bring to the citizenry the results of the commission. So without further ado, Michael Hurley, we're very glad to have you at Rashawn. It's an honor to be here at the Mershon Center for uh, the Studies of International Security and, and really a thrill for me to be at Ohio State University. My thanks to Dr. Dennis McKay and to my friend Dr. Tom Boyd and a special thanks to Professor Rick Herman, the director of the Mershon Center. Thanks, Rick, for the very kind introduction. To all the students here, I want to say at the outset that the world needs your talents and I'm going to get back to that later in my talk. There's so very much I want to talk to you about this afternoon. I'm going to talk to you about the 9-11 attacks on our country. One thing I know with certainty, 
all of you remember where you were on September 11, 2001. I remember where I was. I was at CIA headquarters in McLean, Virginia. Immediately after the attacks on the World Trade Center towers, CIA's senior management ordered the evacuation of our building and sent almost all our employees home because they thought we might be the next target. A small number of us stayed to keep in touch with our operations throughout the world. I remember drinking Coca-Cola as we waited for a plane to, to slam into our building, as we thought certainly would happen that morning. I want to talk about the 9-11 Commission and its report, what I think it says not just to the United States, but to the world. I want to say something about the challenges that are facing us, that are facing you, the young people in this room. I want to talk about government service and government careers. First, the 9-11 Commission report. This is what it looks like. I think every one of you should read this report. It should, in my view, be mandatory reading for every adult American and taught in every professional school, university, college, high school in the country. Young adults, like many of you here, and Americans throughout the country, it seems to me, should review what we said about our government's handling of the threat of terrorism. It will help you determine whether we are, we are on the right path today, and if we are not, to help determine how we get on it and stay on it. Since the terrible attacks on the United States masterminded by Osama bin Laden, Ayman Zawahiri, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and carried out by 19 young men filled with hate and contempt for life, so much has happened to transform us and how we think about the world and what we need to do now and into the future together. Everyone who witnessed the events of that day can still recall the horrifying images, the shock and confusion, and the overwhelming sadness of September 11, 2001. We always will. September 11 will be remembered as the collective story of so many dreams that went unfulfilled. It is also the story of the families, those who died in the attacks, left behind. Whenever I talk about 9-11, Shakespeare's lines from King Lear come to mind. The weight of this sad time we must obey, speak what we feel, not what we want to say. The 9-11 Commission's start was slow. The Commission, some say, was set up to fail. Five Democrats and five Republicans, all of whom had spent their lifetimes in politics, were appointed as commissioners. It was born in a politically charged atmosphere. It is a miracle that it got off the ground at all. Selections for its first chairman and vice chair, Henry Kissinger and George Mitchell, wavered when each had to withdraw for conflict of interest reasons. But even an inauspicious start turned out, at least in my estimation, to be better for the country because Tom Kane, the former governor of New Jersey, was then selected to be chairman, and Lee Hamilton, the former chairman of the House International Relations Committee, was designated vice chair. And what I want you to know is that both of them were magisterial. They served our country very, very well. Each of you here in this room has had a favorite teacher, one who influenced you, inspired you, motivated you, opened new doors of knowledge, and set an example of rectitude and what it means to be an American. Tom Kane and Lee Hamilton were such teachers. They were such leaders. And because of their leadership, the commission didn't fail. I was present in the room when they voted unanimously last summer in mid-July to approve the final report, and it was a remarkable occasion. I had the sense that I was looking through the keyhole of history, and it reminded me of a time in the distant past when leaders could set aside their differences. 
Critics have said that in forging consensus on the report, commissioners must have watered down their positions on, issue, on, on issues, that they pulled their punches, punches. But in fact, what they did was work diligently to develop the strongest factual basis possible for the report. There were tough and tenacious arguments over the record, but those arguments were usually resolved by what an interviewee actually said or what documents indicated were the actions our government had actually taken. Imagine that, allowing facts to tell a story rather than the opinions of celebrities or talking heads. As John Adams liked to say, facts are stubborn things. They don't lie and they don't change. The commissioners, I believe, understood that Despite the divisiveness of the election campaigns in full tilt then, at a deeper level today, many Americans hunger for bipartisanship. National security is more important than politics. I was made the director of the staff's counterterrorism policy investigation. That meant that I had significant responsibility for investigating the decisions regarding the terrorist threat taken and not taken by the Clinton and Bush administrations. In the course of our work, the team I directed had access to the most sensitive documents the U.S. government produces. Time doesn't permit for me to describe for you the impressive qualifications of my team, much less those of the staff as a whole. They con committed themselves for two year, almost two years to do monumental work. What they accomplished took my breath away. Let me just tell you that you would have been proud of them. I was. We spent hundreds of hours interviewing the highest officials of the United States government. To sit across from Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, then Secretary of State Colin Powell, then National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, former National Security Advisor Sandy Berger, Madeleine Albright, William Cohen, then Director of CIA George Tenet, the current Chairman and former Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and dozens of other high-ranking officials asking them to explain their decisions and actions was an unforgettable and extraordinary experience. I vividly remember the morning early last April when Dr. Condoleezza Rice appeared before the Commission in public hearing. In our system of government, you cannot compel a national security advisor to appear before a commission of inquiry. She came voluntarily because the administration wanted to tell the American public its story. There were more television cameras in that Senate hearing room that morning than it had ever been assembled in Washington before. The popping of flashbulbs from the cameras of the hundreds of photographers was deafening. And that wasn't the end of that particular day. Moments after the historic hearing ended, a small group of us raced to an unpublicized meeting with President Clinton. Over nearly five hours, he explained when he first learned of al-Qaeda, how he perceived the threat, and what actions his administration had taken to respond to it. While I was questioning a former president of the United States, I thought of my dad, a former World War II Navy veteran who had died some 15 months before that hearing with President Clinton. And what I thought was that he might not think, had he viewed that moment, that my legal education had been totally wasted. We are one of the few countries in the world in which such a review could even have taken place. If the young people in this room ever get the chance to serve on a national commission, take that chance. You'll be glad you did. You will see yourself as a surrogate for the American people. You'll feel the responsibility to find out the truth for them and to tell it to them candidly. Earlier, as part of the investigation, I traveled with my colleague, Philip Zelico, the executive director of the commission. We went to Pakistan, where we questioned high-ranking officials in the teeming city of Karachi, where al-Qaeda had roots, and in the capital, Islamabad, and northwest frontier city, Peshawar, not far from the Khyber Pass into Afghanistan. 
In Afghanistan, we found out from commanding U.S. and allied generals and soldiers and from Afghanistan's leadership how the war on terror was going. We went to bin Laden's one-time lairs in Kandahar and from army helicopters saw his complex at Tarnak Farms. We went into Mullah Omar's bomb shelter. I walked some of the same ground where I had stalked al-Qaeda only months before. All of that direct experience informed our final report. The Commission's mandate was to provide a complete accounting of the facts and circumstances surrounding the 9-11 attacks and to make recommendations to keep the country safer. This was spelled out in the statute that created the Commission. The voice of this book is factual. It's non-judgmental. Many have found the report readable, even engrossing. The late historian and librarian of Congress, Daniel Borston, said that good history should be good literature. Good literature? The report was nominated for the National Book Award for Nonfiction and was number one on the New York Times bestseller list for months. Here's what the National Book Foundation said about it in that nomination. A century from now, when readers look back to understand the attacks on September 11th, this is the volume they will turn to. It provides an unflinching examination of governmental errors. And just as, a aside, well, as an aside, the actual winner of the National Book Award for Nonfiction here was a professor, I think, right here at Ohio State University, Kevin Boyle. And if you haven't read his book, The Ark of Justice, please read it. It is a fantastic book and a tremendous achievement. Um, I thought that nothing could beat this report for the National Book Award, <laughs> but I stand in admiration of what Professor Boyle did. So get his book and read it this summer, please, all of you, all of you students here, and then read this one as well. <laughs> but can anyone remember anything comparable of any government report? The report is dense with fact. Some of the history will chill you, while some of the acts of heroism it recounts are riveting, and they will bring you to tears. History will judge whether we succeeded in our purpose. On the morning of 9-11, 19 men with a terrible purpose cleared airport security at three different East Coast airports and boarded four transcontinental flights. They were planning to hijack these flights and turn them into large guided missiles loaded with up to 11,400 gallons of jet fuel. They defeated all the security layers that America's civil aviation system then had in place to prevent a hijacking. We were zero for 19 that day. The terrorists beat us badly that day. Overall, we learned that the institutions and many officials charged with protecting our borders, civil aviation, and national security did not understand how grave the al-Qaeda threat could be and did not adjust their policies, plans, and practice to deter or defeat it. We pointed to problems between foreign and domestic intelligence and between and within agencies of the United States government. The terrorists you see exploited deep institutional failings in our government. The commission said that the attacks were a shock but they should, that they should not have been a surprise, and here's why. In 1993, Islamist terrorists tried to bring down the World Trade Center. They planned to blow up the Holland and Lincoln Tunnels and other landmarks in New York City. We now think that in October 1993, the Somali tribesmen who shot down the U.S. helicopters, killing 18 United States Army Rangers, what we know as Black Hawk Down, received help from al-Qaeda. In early 1995, authorities uncovered a plot to blow up a dozen U.S. 747s over the Pacific. If that operation had been successful, if it had not been thwarted, 4,000 people would have been murdered. 4,000 people in 1995. In February 1998, Osama bin Laden issued a decree, a decree declaring it was God's command that every Muslim should try his utmost to kill any American, military or civilian, anywhere in the world. In August 1998, 
Al-Qaeda carried out near-simultaneous truck bomb attacks on U.S. embassies in East Africa, Nairobi, and Dar es Salaam, killing 224 people, including 12 Americans, and wounding thousands more. In December 1999, authorities arrested Ahmed Rassam as he entered the United States from Canada. He just happened to be on his way to bomb Los Angeles International Airport. In October 2000, suicide bombers tried to put the USS Cole to the bottom of the sea off the coast of Yemen. They killed 17 sailors and wounded 40 more. The 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon were far more elaborate, precise, and destructive than any of these earlier assaults. And we now know, because of the work the 9-11 Commission did, that the original 9-11 plan called for hijacking 10 airplanes to include attacks against towers on the West Coast. So the death toll might have been three or four times what it actually was on 9-11. So you see, by September 2001, the executive branch of the United States government, the Congress, the news media, and the American public had received clear warning that Islamist terrorists meant to kill Americans in high numbers. And yet, we were sleepwalking. We were living with a false sense of security in this country. Before 9-11, our country was still poised to defend against large-scale attacks from armies and navies. Our military, the best in the world, was designed to inflict great damage to standing armies of nation-states, traditional powers that possessed assets and resources they cared about losing. Our defense, specifically our air defenses, looked outward. Those defenses were sluggish and lacked agility when the threat originated inside the United States. From 1991, when the Cold War ended, our country and government were going through a historic transition, trying to adjust to a dramatically changed world. Well, transi transitions are hard, and it was difficult to see over the horizon or predict from which direction new lethal adversaries might suddenly appear. Changing patterns of thinking about strategic threat that had been calcified across decades proved equally hard. On the morning of 9-11, existing protocols between the Federal Aviation Administration and the America's air defense were unsuited in every respect for what happened. On 9-11, as the hijackings were underway, officials scrambled to improvise the defense to a threat they had never before contemplated. The aim of the 9-11 Commission report was not to assign individual blame. Many have asked, why was that? Well, where would you begin in assigning specific blame even if you wanted to? Administration after administration over the course of over two decades had dealt with terrorism using a variety of, of instruments of national power. But we mostly thought the threat was overseas. In the 2000 election campaign, there was a notable absence of serious discussion between candidates George Bush and Al Gore of the Al-Qaeda threat or of terrorism. And the attack on the USS Cole happened during the campaign, less than one month before the election. The Americans killed in these earlier attacks were mostly military or diplomats. It was easy to think that people in these professions had assumed certain risks when they put themselves in harm's way overseas. And what lessons did terrorists learn from failures of the United States to respond to attacks on the Marine barracks in Beirut in 1983? Remember, more than 250 Marines were killed. And what was the response of the United States government? We pulled our forces out of there. Nothing else happened. And on our Air Force personnel at Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia in 1996. 
or from the failures of two administrations to respond to the suicide attack on the USS Cole. And again, let me remind you, 17 U.S. sailors killed, 40 wounded. This was an act of war on the United States. The Federal Aviation Administration, for example, had not rethought its policy on hijacking, much less retrained commercial airline pilots and airline personnel regarding how to respond to one for years. And why was that? Because no aircraft had been hijacked for a long time. There was a period in the 70s and early 80s when hijackings were common. But then we went through a long period when nothing like that was happening, and people thought that the problem was behind us. In fact, on 9-11, standard policy was for pilots to follow instructions from hijackers. The belief was that hijackers would want to scram on a one-way ticket to Havana or some other place, perhaps to negotiate for the release of terrorists held in prison. Pilots testified to us that if terrorists aboard a plane had grabbed a passenger or flight attendant and threatened to kill them or to bomb the plane, they would have opened the door of the cockpit. The policy was to protect passengers by getting the plane on the ground. No one thought the plane itself would be used to massacre thousands on the ground. At a hearing last fall, a congressman asked Chairman Tom Kane and Vice Chair Lee Hamilton what intelligence the pilot of American 11, you remember that's the first plane hijacked on that morning, what intelligence the pilot, a decorated Vietnam veteran, John Oganoski, had on the morning of 9-11 about terrorist threats. The answer, regrettably, was not very much. Might he have been able to take some heroic action if it had entered his mind that hijackers might be on his aircraft and would intended to destroy all the passengers or use the plane itself as a guided missile to slam into a World Trade Center tower? Well, we'll never know. The government missed some specific opportunities. In 2000, we lost the trail in Southeast Asia of two known al-Qaeda terrorists who had participated in the attacks on our embassies in 1998 and who would participate in the 9-11 attacks, and we did not track them when they entered the United States and resided in San Diego for over a year, and get this, while living in a dwelling that they were leasing from an FBI informant on radical Muslim activities. We did not link the arrest in Minneapolis of Zacharias Musawi, described as interested in flight training for the purpose of using an airplane in a terrorist attack in FBI memos, to heighten indications in summer 2001 of an impending attack. We did not uncover false statements on visa applications when terrorists entered our country. We did not expand airlines' no-fly lists to include the names from terrorist watch lists maintained by CIA, the FBI, and the State Department. The Federal Aviation Administration had exactly 12 names on its list. In other words, only 12 names of all the people in the world that they would not allow to get on aircraft, commercial aircraft, because they were thought to have suspicious ties or be connected to terrorism in some way. The CIA and State Department and the FBI carried 61,000 names on their lists. These lists were not shared with the Federal Aviation Administration. The most important failure was a failure of imagination, because we do not believe leaders understood the gravity of the threat before 9-11. We failed to grasp the implications of Islamist extremist movements that had grown unchecked for almost 30 years. In the words of Commissioner John Lehman, a former Secretary of the Navy, we failed to grasp the extent of the evil that was stalking us. Who failed? We traced a chain of missteps across two administrations that failed to anticipate the attacks. It was a failure of presidents, congressmen, 
American political leaders and commentators to imagine the broad nature of this evil and its effectiveness if concentrated in targeting the United States and its people. Perhaps this failure of imagination accounts for why alarm bells weren't sounding at high levels of the government in the summer of 2001 when FBI special agents were writing memos about militant Arab males taking flying lessons in the United States in the Southwest. We did not think the unthinkable. We are a power with global interests, and to some extent the notion had settled in that our outposts would occasionally be attacked. That's, after all, the price of doing business when you have military, diplomatic, and commercial interests around the world. We were insufficiently concerned about terrorist attacks on our homeland. You see, it wasn't the terrorists. Terrorists only wanted to kill 12 Americans in the embassy bombings in 1998. They wanted to kill every American in those two embassies. It wasn't that they only wanted to kill 12, 17 sailors on the USS Cole in Yemen in October 2000. They wanted to kill the hundreds on board that ship and put it to the bottom of the sea. Bin Laden in the mid-1990s, at least since the mid-1990s, and we know this for a fact, was trying to acquire weapons of mass destruction. He was trying to get a nuclear bomb. Some officials in the United States government clearly foresaw the looming danger. Richard Clark, the chief counterterrorist manager at the National Security Council, wrote to the National Security Advisor an impassioned personal note before a critical meeting on al-Qaeda. He criticized United States government efforts past and present. The real question before policymakers, he wrote, was, are we serious about dealing with the al-Qaeda threat? Is al-Qaeda a big deal? Decision makers, he said, should imagine themselves on a future day when we have not succeeded in stopping al-Qaeda attacks and hundreds of Americans lay dead in several countries, including the United States. What would these decision makers wish they had done earlier, he asked. That future day, he said, could happen at any time. That was his warning in a memo. His memo was dated September 4, 2001. Clark could not understand why we continued to allow the existence of large-scale al-Qaeda bases where we knew people were being trained to kill Americans. There was a failure of policy. Terrorism was not the overriding national concern for the United States government under either the Clinton or the pre-9-11 Bush administration. Officials in both administrations regarded a full U.S. invasion of Afghanistan as practically inconceivable before 9-11, and all the top officials of both administrations testified to that before our commission in public hearing in March 2004. There was a failure of capabilities. A specific finding of the report is that before 9-11, no agency of the United States government did more to protect the country than the Central Intelligence Agency against this threat of al-Qaeda. In 1996, long before other agencies, it dedicated an office to hunting for bin Laden. It worked closely with foreign authorities to disrupt plots. It captured more than 30 al-Qaeda operatives and rendered them to justice. Its successes saved many lives. It was the only agency that put its officers in harm's way in Afghanistan before 9-11. They flew at night in dilapidated helicopters over high mountains, weaving through passes into a virtual viper's nest. But the CIA had its limits. In particular, it had minimal capacity to conduct paramilitary operations with its own personnel, and it did not seek a large-scale expansion of these capabilities before 9-11. Policymakers and CIA leadership relied too much on tribal networks in Afghanistan to capture or kill bin Laden. That reliance continued despite years of failure and management's lack of confidence in the capabilities of these tribals to carry out their tasks, for which they were being paid handsomely. 
The CIA's deputy director for operations told us that he never had any confidence in these tribal proxies of the CIA. So as 1999 came to a close, no option for capturing bin Laden was rated as having more than a 15% chance of achieving its objective. Yet despite this bleak assessment, we continued to base most of our action in the hope that we might get lucky. This was the principal sort of policy thing and action that the U.S. government was taking to deal with bin Laden, only a 15% chance of possibly succeeding. I commend to you here, because I want to give you some reading this summer in addition to Kevin Boyle's book and the 9-11 Commission report, <laughs> Steve Cole's book, Ghost Wars. Steve Cole is the managing editor of the Washington Post. Ghost Wars recounts the secret history of CIA, Afghanistan, and bin Laden from the Soviet invasion to September 10, 2001. It's a superb history of how al-Qaeda built up in Afghanistan and of our efforts to counter it. And last month, it won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction. That's Steve Cole's second Pulitzer Prize, a book well worth reading if you want to understand how your government was responding to this threat before 9-11. The most serious weaknesses in agency capabilities were in the domestic arena. The FBI had done some good work in the mid-1990s arresting those responsible for the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993. Do you know how that happened? How they made that arrest? One of the plotters was named Salome. Salome had gone to a rider truck rental agency office to rent the truck that was actually used in the bombing. After the truck was blown to smithereens in the attack, and remember, there were, I think, over 1,000 people wounded, six, Americans, six people killed, 1,000 or so wounded. After the truck was blown to smithereens in the attack, in, in an act of monumental chutzpah, he returned to the rider office and told them that the truck had been stolen, and he repeatedly demanded his security deposit back. Meantime, the FBI, with some great forensic work, found remnants of the truck's vehicle identification number. These had been scattered in downtown Manhattan, some distance from where the bomb was detonated. They stitched the pieces together and traced the vehicle to the office where it had been rented. When Salome went back one more time to reclaim his $50, he got a big surprise. The feds were waiting. Ironically, that success, and that led to the unraveling of the entire plot, and eventually the blind shake was arrested, and you know the story. Ironically, that success may have led us to underappreciate the capabilities of Islamist terrorists because the near-comical rider rental truck episode made these terrorists look like they were the gang who couldn't shoot straight. But lost in the drama was the fact that they had attacked and wounded thousands, and they planned and executed this operation right here in the United States. <coughs> Overall, the FBI's most glaring flaw was that it did not have the capability or the culture to link the collective knowledge of agents in the field to national priorities. There was a failure of management. There was poor cooperation among agencies. Agency managers did not cover themselves with glory in the way they organized their departments to battle the threat. In December 1998, CIA Director George Tenet issued a statement declaring war on al-Qaeda, except the other leaders of the agencies within the intelligence community, and there are 15 of them in the United States government, never got the message. They did not devote greater funds, resources, or personnel to the threat. Certainly that is the least one would have expected if, they, if we were indeed at war. The sad fact is that this country was not paying sufficient attention to what was going on in the world before 9-11 and viewed terrorist attacks as episodic, containable, something that happened over there, overseas. A few people gunned down or blown up from time to time was no big deal. It happens. 
If you really study this book and bring your analytical powers and critical faculties to bear, you will know more about our national security structure, what is good about it, and what needs fixing than most Americans. And your opinions will, be matter, will, will matter. They will be objective because you haven't been part of the mess. Until this report was released, the information it contains on U.S. covert action against bin Laden, that means action authorized the president to kill Osama bin Laden, were classified at the highest level of sensitivity. That alone should entice you to read it. You need to know what the government was doing because it was acting in all of our names on behalf of all of us. So what does the report have to tell you? Only by reading it carefully will you come to understand that this what this report really is. It is perhaps the broadest and deepest investigation of U.S. policy decision-making and those in charge of it in our nation's history. There are few other governments in the world that would have even allowed such a sweeping investigation to occur, much less paid for it. And it, the investigation cost $15 million. <clears throat> the president, on December 17, signed into law many of the commission's re recommendations. Among them, we now have a director of national intelligence to manage better our complex, sprawling intelligence community and to get better information sharing among our agencies. The president, as you know, selected Ambassador John Negroponte for this very formidable task. The law also established a national counterterrorist center to plan joint operations. It fortifies our borders with increased border guards and contains many other provisions that will make the country safer. Much remains to be implemented, including changes in how Congress oversees intelligence and homeland security. We found that the Secretary of Homeland Security, for example, has to report to something like 88 committees and subcommittees of Congress. He's spending all his time on the Hill testifying. <coughs> 88 bosses, in fact, he has. Most of us have enough trouble with having just one boss. There's something far more important than any single recommendation or set of recommendations that we made. It's something that I've thought deeply about, and I want you to think about it. I've worked closely with the United States military and allied military in many trouble spots in the world, alongside elite U.S. military units, Delta Force and SEAL Team 6, Marine Force Recon, in Haiti, Bosnia, Kosovo, and Afghanistan. <clears throat> and I have great admiration for the skills of our allies, having deep experience with British Special Air Service, British Special Boat Service, Australian Special Air Service, and others. I've called in airstrikes on a determined enemy. I've had no moral qualms about this because I don't think you can reason with fanatics who commit mass murder. But I've also built schools and roads in Afghanistan and supplied impoverished areas with needed medical supplies and installed electrical power to hospitals. One of our proudest achievements was to help establish a girls' school in southeastern Afghanistan in late 2001 after girls had been deprived of something as basic as the right to learn how to read for so many years. From this experience, it's become clear that there is no military solution to terrorism. Use of the military is necessary and will answer part of the problem, but there is so much more that can't be resolved through the use of force. New technologies came of age in the 90s that allowed the transfer of mountains of information in seconds. Politics and people have spilled across international borders like never before, but not everyone has shared in the prosperity. Far from it. There are six billion people on this planet. More than half of them earn less than $2 a day. To put it into perspective, you need five times that here just to buy a compact disc. How could you begin to feed a family?
We live in a world in which 400 people own more than a billion people. It is not only a moral dilemma having so many people living in poverty. Ultimately, it will be dangerous and destabilizing for our world. Can we accept this? It's a reality that really is unsustainable. And as you know from your studies, it's a threat to world order and stability. Dealing with it goes far beyond what any military can do. Terrorism, the commission found, is not caused by poverty. But when people lose hope, when societies break down, when countries fragment, the breeding grounds for terrorism are created. Economic and political liberties tend to be linked. The American Marine General, who is Supreme Allied Commander with command responsibility for Africa, is deeply worried now about the stability of Africa, given the famine, genocide, and poverty there. U.S. officials have long viewed northwestern Africa's vast desert stretches as prime real estate for aspiring terrorists seeking to set up training camps or other bases. What are we going to do about this? So many of the dispossessed today are young people. Half the world's population is now between the ages of 15 and 24. Throughout the world, young people are growing up in misery without hope of any productive future. They are not encouraged to get an education or to learn about the world. They have no hope of obtaining work, of building a better life. The future means more of the same for them, deprivation and desolation, and so it has no meaning for them. And what are the dimensions of this problem? They're vast. Tom Friedman described it in an editorial in the New York Times. He described interviewing two French Muslim girls. I'm quoting him here. Both girls I interviewed wore veils, and one also wore a full Afghan-like head-to-toe covering. One was of Egyptian parents, the other of Tunisian parents. But both were born and raised in France. What did I learn from them? That they got all their news from Al Jazeera TV because they did not believe French TV. That the person they admired most in the world was Osama bin Laden because he was defending Islam. That suicide martyrdom was justified because there was no greater glory than dying in defense of Islam, <coughs> that they saw themselves as Muslims first and French citizens last, and get this, and that all their friends pretty much felt the same way. He ends his piece by saying, we were not in Kabul or Riyadh. We were standing outside their French public high school, a short ride from the Eiffel Tower. The challenge for all of us, but I think particularly for you, is to figure out how we can begin to change this. It's an enormous task. It means addressing the root causes of terrorism. <clears throat> no one nation can do it. The problem is just too vast. The United States will have to work hand in hand with its allies. How do we change the hearts of those who have given themselves over to hate and intolerance? How do we communicate that life is worth living, that there is beauty and dignity in tolerance? On a basic level, all people share the same aspirations, the chance for a decent living, the desire to make a better life for their children and grandchildren, the desire to live a life free of fear. In international relations, we too often just look at the political layer, but there are other layers, social, economic, cultural, environmental, or gender layers. The West needs to continue to share with the world what it has learned, what it aspires toward, if it is not always put into practice. Respect for law, due process, the dignity of the individual, equal rights under the law for all, equal opportunity regardless of race, color, gender, religion, freedom of speech, freedom to criticize and dissent from power. These are the great principles. These are the great ideas. 
How do you deal with young people throughout the world who regard Osama bin Laden, a mass murderer, as a hero, who see him almost like young people in the West regard rock stars, who have his photo as the screensaver on their computers? Here I think young adults have much to offer. Many of the 9-11 hijackers were in their early to late 20s. On the other hand, from personal experience, I know that many of the U.S. and allied soldiers who are protecting us in godforsaken parts of the world are 18, 19, and 20 years old, the same as many of you in this room. In the United States and in other Western countries, parents often can't even talk or communicate with their own teenage children. Can our political leaders communicate with young people around the globe? Maybe you can communicate to foreigners of your generation. Maybe that will be a step in the right direction. Now let me take a moment to talk about government careers. Although you may not realize that you are now in many ways at the height of your powers, your minds are most active and retentive, you are able to acquire knowledge at a voracious pace, you have a level of energy and commitment that is the envy of your elders. I'm not talking about the professors here, I'm talking about the students. <laughs> your idealism glows and has not been dimmed by excess disappointment or failure. And so I hope that some of you consider government careers. Your country needs your talents. I began my talk by saying that. Honestly, the government needs some very talented people from all across this country. Here in the United States, the new Department of Homeland Security needs skills in a range of areas. Think about the Central Intelligence Agency and its great demand for analysts. I've just learned today that there's a great program here at Ohio State University that's getting people trained for uh, careers as analysts in the government. The FBI is deeply involved in the fight against terrorism and has exciting careers, careers where you can really make a contribution. If it's right for you, consider the U.S. military. Can I see a show of hands from the young people here? How many of you have um, relatives who are in the, in the military? That's great. I want to thank you for, for their service and for the sacrifices your families are making. Think about the United States Agency for International Development. For sure, think about the State Department. Diplomacy, building diplomatic ties, understanding other cultures and nations will be critical in the tough years ahead. The Department of Energy has a role to play in locking down nuclear weapons and weapons-grade materials. What are known as loose nukes in the hands of terrorists constitute the greatest threat we face today. I don't know if any of you saw Meet the Press on Sunday. It was probably one of the best segments of Meet the Press I've ever seen. Five distinguished Americans, Senator, former Senator Sam Nunn, Senator Richard Lugar, Governor Tom Kane, Lee Hamilton, and former Senator Fred Thompson talked about this issue of loose nuclear weapons and what we need to do to lock them down. So I urge you to pull off a transcript of this from the Internet and read it, and maybe even see if you can get a videotape of it um, and educate yourselves on this issue. It's just huge. Many among you will go on to careers in law, medicine, business, government, teaching, or politics. Regardless which path you choose, you have given your education, interests, and means an opportunity to lead. You need to remember that leadership is not just the province of presidents and prime ministers or of corporate tycoons. Leadership, I think, is best demonstrated through example. Promoting the rule of law in areas where the fabric of society has been torn is noble and essential for our world. As a doctor in Doctors Without Borders, you can lead in small villages in disease-afflicted areas throughout the world. As an officer in a non-governmental aid organization, you can bring innovations that will positively affect people's lives. As an employee of the United Nations, you can work to improve that organization, help it realize its founding goals, and lead it to face with tenacity and imagination the problems in the world. 
So how do you prepare for these demanding careers in government, for those of you who are interested? Think heading the list, perhaps, is learning a foreign language and studying it hard and understanding other cultures. That all has to be high on the list. In the dark days of the Cold War, Congress, in response to the Soviet Union's launching of Sputnik and the implications that had on U.S. vulnerabilities, passed the National Defense Education Act. That legislation funded education in the sciences. A similar massive effort is required today. We need government assistance to students who are willing to learn Arabic, Pashto, Pashto, Farsi, and Urdu, just for starters, and other languages. Push hard for the government to support you if you commit yourself to getting this knowledge that our country so desperately needs. Last January in Washington, D.C., I attended a fascinating event hosted by the Washington Post. It was a discussion of the author David Halberstam's, Halberstam's book, The Best and Brightest, published 33 years ago. Halberstam was a reporter at the New York Times. He won a Pulitzer Prize at the age of 30. The Best and the Brightest recounts the fateful decisions of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations that led to the quagmire in Vietnam. In writing the book, Halberstam interviewed the top officials of the United States at that time. In 1969, he interviewed McGeorge Bundy, who had been a very young dean of Harvard College. He was Jack Kennedy's and Lyndon Johnson's national security advisor, and perhaps the brightest light in the constellation of intellectual superachievers that Kennedy had assembled. Halberstam, then 29, had an epiphany at the end of this interview. He was shocked that this man, for all of his impressive intelligence and credentials, had been out of touch with the country and refused to examine positions he had taken, policies he advanced, which were demonstrably wrong. The encounter confirmed in Halberstam that he should trust his own experience and training, which, in its own way, could contend with anyone with whom he came into contact. Later in the talk, Halberstam said that his greatest continuing joy, now at age 70, is the ability to use his mind. That struck me as profoundly wise. The, the ability to use our minds is the most important attribute in the exercise of freedom. I fear that as a society and culture, we have gotten used to finding easy and quick answers through the internet. But deep insight comes through toil and experience, through curiosity and inquisitiveness. In Halberstam's case, it came from reporting on the civil rights movement in the Deep South in the late 1950s, and a few years later, slogging through the rice paddies of South Vietnam, talking not just to the powerful, but to those who had something honest and interesting to say, and above all, listening to them. The point I'm trying to make is, don't let others feed you easy solutions. Think for yourselves. You're going to need to seek out knowledge. That's why I'm so happy to be here talking to the young scholars here at Ohio State University. Train yourselves to read daily the international and national reporting of the finest newspapers in the world. Find out who the best reporters are. They'll be the ones who deal in fact. Do that and stick with that, and you'll be better informed than the holder of multiple PhDs. A good starting point to understand human nature is to read Shakespeare's works and then read them again. In fact, read them throughout your lives. I envy you your stage in life. I, for one, would love to be back in college, especially when I look at this beautiful campus. All doors are open to you as you go forward. I'd encourage you to show deep appreciation for your international friends that are here at Ohio State University. They will bring an incomparable richness and depth to your lives. Their knowledge and experience increases our awareness of the world. Imagine just for a moment how hard it would be for most of us to go to a foreign country, to write at the college level in a language other than our own, to make friends and to feel a part of university life.
That is what your fellow international classmates experience, and they have so much to offer the United States and to bring back to their homelands. Imagine now how fulfilling it will be to sit across from them one day in a major peace negotiation. That actually happens. The bonds that you build today will lead to better international understanding. There seems to be agreement among government officials and other experts on terrorism that more attacks will happen in this country. More attempts will be made, perhaps with more horrible weapons than turning our aircraft against buildings. We have to do everything we can to keep another 9-11 or anything close to it from ever happening again. That is the challenge and the urgency. The world desperately needs the values that come from true respect for the law and for human beings. As concerned young adults, you students here need to bring your advantages to bear. The thing is, you can make a difference. Individuals in this country can make a difference. The 9-11 Commission basically got established because the families of the victims of 9-11 organized. They knew nothing about politics. They knew nothing about Congress. But they organized and learned about these issues and formed themselves about national security. And their work created the 9-11 Commission. And ultimately, they got a law passed to help keep this country safer. We need to fight for a better world. If you don't like something, if something strikes you as unfair, change it. You need to get up earlier, work harder, train tougher, and be better disciplined, and you'll be amazed at what you can accomplish. You need to set high standards for yourselves. You need to do hard things in hard places. When you have done that, you will have earned your place, and people will listen to you and care about what you have to say because you'll know what you're talking about. And then you can sit down with kings and presidents, and you will be respected. 61 years ago, a leader I greatly admire, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, speaking at Harvard University, but really speaking, I think, to all Americans about America's importance to the world, said, you cannot stop. There is no halting place at this point. We have now reached a stage in the journey where there can be no pause. We must go on. It must be world anarchy or world order. Tyranny is our foe, wherever, whatever disguise it wears or language it speaks. We must forever be on our guard. We do face daunting and formidable challenges in the years ahead. There are great dangers, but great opportunities for all of us. Each generation in this country is called on to preserve and advance freedom. That is what we owe our democracy. The torch will be passed to you, the students in this room, in the very near future. Forty-four years ago, President Kennedy challenged the United States and the world. That challenge still urges us onward. The fundamental responsibility required of all of us is to be informed and engaged about what our government is doing. So again, I encourage you to read the report. Each time I read it, I learn more. My heart is grabbed more by our failure to see the pattern of things. More ideas occur to me. The same will be true for you. You will be outraged and moved beyond belief. Read the section entitled The Battle for United 93, one of the four planes hijacked on 9-11. In a sublimely magnificent and tragic moment of decision, unarmed passengers, ordinary, ordinary Americans with no training, who likely knew little of Al-Qaeda, but who had been alerted that two planes had already plowed into the World Trade Center, took a vote and stormed the cockpit to take back control of that aircraft from hijackers. In doing that, they knew that their actions could only lead to their deaths. There was no other alternative. And we now know that they saved the White House or the U.S. Capitol and likely thousands of other innocent people on the ground. This, to my way of thinking, has to be considered one of the most selfless and valorous acts in American history. Think about the New York Police Department and the New York City Fire Department. What they did on 9-11, the lives they saved, 
gives me courage and heartens me and gives me hope to understand the good that human beings are capable of. It's really time now to move beyond the failures of the past in order to anticipate potential future failures while there is still time to do something about them. We all need to ask ourselves constantly, what aren't we doing now? Why aren't we doing it? What are we missing? The country is doing better now, but there's so very much more to do. All of this is a very tall order, but we can achieve it if we remain steadfast in our resolve and summon the courage necessary to change. That we can do. We are, after all, Americans. In 1862, President Lincoln addressed Congress during the darkest days of the Civil War. He told Congress, the dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. The occasion is piled high with difficulty, and we must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country. And so we must act anew. And we've been here before and succeeded, and we shall succeed again. Just a few words of Winston Churchill's, which have always thrilled me and inspired me because of the simplicity and power they convey, are so appropriate for our world today. Let us go forward together. I'm so glad you invited me to Ohio State University. The best of luck to you, and I'm going to be cheering you all on in the future as you're doing your important work. Thank you so very much. Do we have time for some questions? I'd love to. Before I go to see how long I'm going to Sure. As long as you're willing. Yeah. All right, I'm going to let you field your own question. Okay. Hi, um, I'd, I'd love to, to hear any questions that you have. I'll do my best to answer them or any comments to have a discussion. Um, I want to emphasize I, I'm, I'm really here representing Tom Kane and Lee Hamilton, the chair and vice chair of the 9-11 Commission. And they so much want to hear what people think and what people think about what needs to be done in our government and their ideas and things. So let's have a dialogue, please. Anybody have a question? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. There is consensus among them that we are afraid of Afghanistan uh, come close range. That one person that who knew about Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, Ayman al Dawahiri, and Hatir bin Alas, was Masood, Ahmad Shah Masood, who was a comrade of Osama bin Laden fighting against the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan from 1979 up to the two days before the September 11th, that he was assassinated by the two Al Qaeda uh, suicide bombers. Just two days before. And he went to Europe uh, a year before September the 11th. And uh, uh, in the European Parliament, he mentioned that there is a danger in Afghanistan, and we are expecting this very big thing is coming from. So that was. I do not know whether in your visit to Afghanistan, have you sought some sort of information that what Ahmad Shah Massoud and his group is fighting against Osama bin Laden until his death? Well, Massoud played a very important uh, role. He was the leader of the Northern Alliance. They were the sole holdouts against the, the Taliban in Afghanistan, and they were struggling. They had lost by summer of 2001. They only had control of about 10 percent of Afghanistan, which is a country about the size of Texas, I think. And um, he, he, he was certainly one of the voices that was warning the United States government that there was a problem in Afghanistan that would actually come out and reach and hurt the United States. There were others as well, other Afghans uh, actually in Washington talking to people at the State Department. So that message was kind of getting across. The United States was trying to deal with it. Um, 
summer of 2001, the Bush administration had actually just completed a plan where they were going to go in with fairly uh, a large amount of, um, of hundreds of millions of dollars to support uh, Massoud's Northern Alliance uh, in actions against the Taliban. And there were other things that the U.S. government was doing. But uh, you raised the sort of broader question of, was the U.S. government warned about uh, the danger that was building in Afghanistan? I think it was. I think it was. Massoud was one of the people doing that, certainly. Controversial figure, though, for lots of reasons, but also very charismatic leader. They're, they still mourn his loss um, in Afghanistan. Other questions? Yes, please. hesitate to give you, they would just be my personal views. I'm here as a representative of the 9-11 Commission. We looked at the question of the, investigated the attacks on the United States um, and tried to uncover the details of what occurred and why, did it, why it occurred. My opinions on the issue you raised are my opinions as a private citizen. But, I will, but you know the process. Yeah. I'm yeah. Well, I think that um, I, I'm a believer, I'm a believer in commissions. I think, I think, um, you know, if you look at the history of commissions, for example, I mean, some have resonated with the American people, other, others haven't. Often they're created to deal with either a crisis or to explain an event that had occurred or to in investigate a, a matter of, of great public uh, interest. Um, so I, I, think, I think they can actually work rather well if they're led in a bipartisan way, then they have, they have a degree of credibility. On the issue of prisoner abuse, um, I, I'm, just, I'm happy to see that I'm happy to see that there's a public dialogue and public debate about this, uh, and I do think people should weigh in with their views on it if they feel strongly about it, um, and I certainly would be open to seeing one of those. I, there are pluses and minuses for commissions, uh, but I, uh, more importantly, I think I would like to see a public debate on that issue. I think it's important, and I think it's sort of captured people's attention, and um, I was talking to other um, kind of senior people in, in the university here about the whole question of a kind of a related issue that we actually proposed not so much a commission but a panel to look at how uh, concerns about security are having an effect on civil liberties in this country and suggesting the creation of a panel which actually was written into the legislation that the president signed in December um, that now requires the government will set up a panel of, of experts who will examine new laws, uh, what departments and agencies are doing to, to determine and make recommendations about the impact that any new measures uh, or any sort of actions that are taken in the name of counterterrorism, what impact that's having on, on uh, civil liberties. So it's a, it's a different issue than the one you raised, but it is, I mean, I do think things like that can be quite valuable in examining these kinds of questions. Yes, the, General Stewart. Of the uh, commission's recommendations, uh, which of the ones that haven't yet been enacted through enabling legislation, do you think is the most pressing? What's in terms of the work on left or left undone? What's the highest priority? Well, to answer that question and and to say that some of the the ones that have been enacted, and I won't go into detail, but the creation of this director of national intelligence, 
That was a fairly significant recommendation. We made the creation of a national counterterrorist center to ensure that joint action against, uh, uh, against terrorists across the U.S. government, across all agencies. So, um, but we made some other important ones that uh, General Stewart is, is asking which of these other ones that weren't kind of enacted um, do, do I think or do, do we, uh, the members of the 9-11 Commission, think are most important. Um, I would say, first, uh, in terms of our priorities now, is we're really trying to educate the American people about the, the threat of nuclear uh, or other weapons of mass destruction, destruction following the hands of terrorism. So we're pushing very hard for uh, the administration and Congress to make this one of our highest priorities. We didn't make specific recommendations, but sort of saying this has to be number one on the, on the list of priorities, and there has to be sufficient funds allocated for this. So I guess that would be a big issue. A second one, really, we really think that the sole question of reform in Congress, of congressional oversight of homeland security and intelligence um, gets, gets, uh, gets transformed so it's much more efficient and Congress is much more in the, uh, in, in the game of uh, providing strategic guidance and sort of management of what our, our big agencies are doing. It was really Congress was out, was out of it before 9-11. Congress provided almost no strategic guidance on terrorism and what to do about it didn't really concern itself very much with it. And we need to change that. Um, and so that's, that's a big agenda item for us. Uh, we're trying to, uh, to educate the public about that and the need for it, but it's very hard because Congress, not, I'm not you know, making a political statement here, but Congress is a very conservative institution in the sense that bureaucracies can be conservative about, they don't like to change the way they're set up. You know, they like to stick with their traditions and things like that. And when you get into Congress, if you serve there a long time, whether in the House of Representatives or the Senate, over time you accrue seniority, and you can, you can rise to be chairman, uh, vice chair of uh, an important committee. That gives you power and influence. To urge consolidation of these committees or elimination of some of them is very hard because they don't want to give up that power. And we're, we're kind of uh, really urging that. I guess the third thing is that we think it's extremely important that decisions made in terms of how our government spends its money <coughs> on homeland security, for example, that those decisions are, are done on a rational basis, a rational assessment of what the important priorities are, what needs to be protected, rather than have those decisions made in the usual political way where every, every representative, every senator tries to bring so much money back to their own state or their own home district. We believe that we don't know what the terrorists may strike next, but we do know certain things about what they like to do. They like to hit areas of, of great economic power, um, targets that might have huge political significance, for example. Um, likely, uh, that's why New York, Washington um, are, are prime targets, but there are others as well. Critical infrastructure, things that could really do harm if they were, if they were attacked. And we think that, that, that Congress needs to, and the Department of Homeland Security needs to make these priorities and allocate money based on kind of mutual agreement that these are the most likely targets rather than to kind of give some you know, place in the middle of Alaska that's not likely to be attacked, a lot of money that they don't need and will, will, you know, might not be spent in the right way. That's the third priority, I would say. Yes, please. Well, there's a fair amount of criticism of what you refer to as attitude towards the 9-11 Commission that fought the creation of the commission, that it was halting in its transfer of documents, that it missed deadlines, Condoleezza Rice didn't come, president and the vice president insisted on coming together. Do you, does the commission have a sort of take on that? I mean, can, can you speak to, I don't, I don't know if you can, but if you could speak to that, would you, would you comment on the Bush administration's attitude towards the commission? Well, I'll just say sort of factually, I mean, it's, it's sort of a matter of the record that they were not in favor of the establishment of the commission. 
but through the political process it was established and they followed the law with respect to what the law required. Um, I would also say that, yeah, I think, I think we got some, we ran into a few obstacles along the way that slowed our work down, but I think, I think and, and certain things were frustrating, it was tough sometimes to get documents, but I will say, and I had a, I had a very inside view of this, that um, a points of contact were appointed in every agency where we needed documents. Those people were told that they had to produce the documents. Um, and so there was a lot of cooperation going on. It's like one of these things where there was a lot of cooperation going on behind the scenes. A few kind of spectacular or kind of important significant issues sort of blew up. They became public. Um, that was maybe 10% of it. There was 85 90% cooperation going on behind the, the scenes. Um, and I think in the end, uh, look, I have so much respect for Tom Kane and, and, uh, and Lee Hamilton. Um, they conducted themselves in a totally bipartisan way. They would not have put their names on this report if they did not think that we had ultimately, however hard it might have been getting some of these things and getting the testimony, if ultimately we'd, they would not have signed it if they, did not, if they think that things had been withheld from us. In other words, they believe, and, and I believe this, and they've certified to the American public that they saw everything and got everything that they needed to do to make an honest report. So there were frustrations along the way. I wish some of that you know, would have gone a little bit easier. But uh, in the end, we got the job done, and, and, um, and there were some these high-level, highly public sort of disputes, but um, it, it sort of kind of covered a lot of cooperation that was going on at different levels as well, too. So, and I think you've got to be balanced when you look at it. Yes, please. In your investigation of the causes of 9-11 and the preceding attacks or battles in the U.S. war on terrorism, did you find any evidence of any kind, circumstantial or hard evidence, of a connection between al-Qaeda and the Saddam Hussein regime? And then following on that, um, what's your expert assessment of the impact of the war in Iraq on the overall terrorist threat against the United States now and in the future? <coughs> Again, we, we looked at, um, we, our, our mandate was to investigate the attacks on, on us on 9-11. Um, and in, it was from that perspective that we looked at whether any countries, not just Iraq, but were, had supported al-Qaeda or not in carrying out those attacks. And, and we did take a particular look at Iraq. We, account, we, we recount this in, in our report. And the answer we found that we found no evidence linking Saddam Hussein or Iraq to those attacks. Um, now, that's a, that's, that's a question that we're pretty clear on. But let me make a point about that. We're capturing people all the time, al-Qaeda and, and, and others and leaders. It may be the case that somewhere down the road you capture somebody and, they, and you find out new information that does suggest a link. That, that we don't know. And then you change your... You know, you then have to add to or revise what you've learned and what you've said. But as of the date this report um, came out, and since then up till now, we have seen no evidence that suggests there was any linkage between Iraq or Saddam Hussein and the attacks on uh, the United States on 9-11 and al-Qaeda. It's a separate question entirely that we did not get into was, uh, you know, sort of Iraq's support for terrorism in general or whether they've been a problem in terms of terrorism. And that needs to be addressed, and that was much, that's a question much broader than anything that we looked at. So, but but I, I can definitively say, say that we saw no connection in the 9-11 attacks um, with Saddam Hussein or Iraq. Now, your other question, um, it, it sort of gets to, I, I, I just, that's kind of a political question, or it could be a political question as well. And I, I, I'd want to be treated just a little bit gingerly, I guess. But I, I think what I'd say about that is, um, is, We've got a number of things now. There's a lot of, lot of drawing down on our military, on our intelligence people. 
CIA, for example, only has so many operatives and, and so, so many capabilities and resources. And um, any time you have more than one priority going at any given time, if you, have an, if you have something else that you're focusing on well, too, it's going to take some energy and some resources and personnel um, from, from, you know, let's be clear here. Afghanistan, on the one hand, and the things we are doing there, um, Iraq has taken a big effort and a lot, of, uh, a lot of personnel, obviously, and money and attention. So um, I would say in general, just, just in general, uh, you're going to have, um, it, it's going to have some impact. I mean, you're diverting attention to some extent. But on the other hand, um, you know, it, you never are in a situation in government where you, you, you have the luxury of just focusing on, on one thing. So, um, and these are, these are, this is a political decision that's been made about Iraq. I'm not going to give you my views on it. They're unimportant, and they're no more valid than anybody else's in, in this room. But I do think that, that clearly, you know, we have a limited number of resources, and so to handle two sort of big things at the same time, um, it does, there are trade-offs that are made. That's almost certain. I want to make sure that the students get out the floor. Yes, please. Well, the Patriot Act um, is is kind of a broad collection of things, and there's a lot of lot of parts to it. Um, part of it was meant to address a problem that we had before um, uh, 9/11 that made the FBI, in particular, rather ineffective in addressing terrorism in certain ways in this country. And it really had to do with the fact that um, the FBI had to meet a certain a standard in order to get. Uh, the proper warrants from judges um, to be able to to take an action to develop evidence or a case on a criminal side against a suspect. Um, the FBI was given certain authority to be able to develop intelligence information, but it could not use that information it developed in criminal cases. So it was called, and, and that all had to do with, you, you know, you don't want the FBI, uh, basically it had to do with questions of how much do we want the FBI doing? Did we want it to be an intelligence agency in the United States? Uh, and there are all kinds of issues in our history that, that speak to that and have an impact on that. So this, this wall was created, and it really, what happened was the FBI in part really looked at terrorism a, as a crime and that it didn't really see itself as an organization that was necessarily meant to prevent crime. And as a result, um, there was not very good information sharing going on even within components of the FBI itself because for legal reasons it couldn't share its intelligence information with FBI doing criminal cases and things like that. So the Patriot Act in part got rid of that wall. And so that, that division doesn't exist there. There's better information sharing going on. And I think there's part of that, that's the part of the act that I, I really support. And I think that's important and it's an important change. And it's going to help keep us safer. There are other parts of the act I think that are less familiar, that I'm less familiar with. Um, and that probably, I think, need good monitoring from people that, you know, that, that, that need oversight and monitoring in terms of civil liberties. I'm not, I don't think the whole act should be thrown out. I think large parts of it are fine. But there are parts, that I think, that need to be reviewed carefully. And in part, we made this recommendation for the creation of this panel to do just that. 
um, to, to, to look at this whole question of security versus uh, civil liberties. And so um, let's keep the good parts of the act and let's get rid of the ones that, that you know, people can agree on, maybe go too far. That, that would be my recommendation. Yes, please. Um, in the past few, a few years, we've been, uh, I guess, hearing a lot about the Middle East uh, as a threat to the United States. But uh, recently, I read a New York Times article that mentioned parts of inner China become, um, breeding grounds for, uh, becoming breeding, breeding grounds for terrorism to the United States. But at the same time, we know that we have a very strong trade relationship with, with China. How do you see the government um, dealing with from I think it'd be deeply concerned if it. I mean, what you're really talking about here is what, what I guess the government refers to as terrorist sanctuaries or potential sanctuaries. We usually associate those with places where there are weak governments and where governments have broken down and terrorists are able to kind of go in and have their training camps and that kind of thing. And so there are some countries in the Middle East, for example, that sort of fit that 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 description. China has a much stronger government, but a very you know very big country, lots of territory. I think we'd be deeply concerned about, um, I haven't seen these, these reports myself, I guess I've heard a little bit about it, but we'd certainly be deeply concerned about that. And, and I, I've got to believe that our government would, um, of course they'd have to weigh you know, what are other goals with respect to China, et cetera, but that they would, um, they would certainly address that. That'd have to be a real high priority if they had knowledge that terrorists were there, the kinds of terrorists that would go out and, and do transnational terrorism and attack in other countries. Um, I, I think any administration would have to take that pretty seriously. I'm sorry. At the same time, we have the China's essential Yeah, and then the government makes those kinds of decisions and determines well, how do you deal with this. I don't think they, I don't think I think it would be wrong, and I just I can't really see any administration now sticking its head in the sand about this. But they might they might do it, you know, sort of more quietly the negotiations about it or putting pressure on in, in sorts of ways. But, of course, they have to consider how is this going to, what effect is this going to have on other, on other goals? Um, it's, it, there's, those kinds of decisions are made all the time. You, uh, yes, please. Yeah. Um, you said in your, your talk that you can't reason with fanatics and also that we need to learn how to change the hearts of people without voting, right? So I personally believe that, like, fanaticism rises out of specific um, cultural, historical, economic context. What do you think, um, if, if, if fanatics can't be reasoned with, what do you think that we can do um, to work towards eliminating sort of this threat to, to not just America, but to, as you put it, global stability? So that's the first question. And the second question is, what do you, um, what do you see, what do you see uh, uh, as the role of disciplines like anthropology and cultural studies in this process? I think on your first question, I think the point I was really trying to make is, you know, I, I just, I can't see us, you can't sit down with somebody like Osama bin Laden and say, you know, don't attack the United States and we'll give you all these inducements for not doing it. There, there's just, you're not, some people are so committed to uh, their agenda or, or their goals that you're not going to be able to, you know, rational human discussion will not, will sort of not work with them. But I, I agree, I mean, the other issue you're raising there is kind of the root causes of terrorism and how do you address the people that don't fit into that category, but yet might be susceptible to, to that because maybe they have legitimate grievances or grievances of varying degrees of, of legitimacy or so. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's very important to try to address those. I, I really think that we need a sustained national and international effort to try to, to try to see what these underlying problems may be and to try to, try to address them. So I think that's, I think that's very important. Um, and in terms of, of studies, 
um, you know, cultural studies, anthropological studies, these other things that you raised, I think extremely important. I think the more we have people, you know, students doing that and understanding the world in which we live, the better off that, that we'll be in the future. So I encourage you to uh, pursue that if you're doing it. And take some of these hard languages. I mean, the more languages you're at, I, was, I had a um, talk, a, um, a very good talk with a, a senior university official this morning. And, you know, you're, you students here are at, at an age, challenge yourself, learn more than one language. Learn two or three languages, and you'll be different, you know, from my generation in that. I mean, some some people have been able to do that, but um, but do it. And this is this is the absolute ideal time in your lives when you can do it, kind of in an unencumbered way, and and you have the abilities to do it. So pursue these studies, and I think that will be very very helpful. You speak Spanish and French, correct? I do. What languages would you suggest is the most important? You talked about Urdu and, and some of these sort of uh, mid Asian languages. Um, do you think those are some of the most important? Yeah, I mean, I hate to sign priorities, but I, there's no question that we need people that um, that that uh, are fluent in Arabic, for example, and take an interest in um, in the part of the world where Arabic is spoken. Um, Islamic studies, uh, I think Chinese certainly, um, you know, great world language, very important to know that given China's role now and in kind of expanding role in the future. Uh, all those things are important, um, but I wouldn't limit it to that. Japanese, Russian. And not just places that are problems, but places where understanding different cultures, I think, um, is just really, really important. But I guess right now, if I had to say one, I'd say Arabic would be, is we need more uh, Americans tuned in both to the language and the culture and the history uh, so that we can understand, you know, the opportunities and the challenges posed um, in, in um, the Middle East and South Asia, et cetera. Yes, please. Uh, you mentioned in your talk about um, Tom, Tom Friedman's experience in France with those two uh, girls. Do you feel uh, in your uh, experience that there's a disconnect between Islam and Western culture? And how how is there something about the two that they're not going to be able to reconcile with? Or is it just a matter of misunderstanding? And if it's just a misunderstanding, how do you see uh, the two societies being around that and I'm not an expert on Islam, but you know, you're kind of raising this whole sort of academic sort of clash of civilizations question that's been out there for a while. Certainly, um, I, I don't see it as a clash of civilizations personally. I, I see it as um, some ruthless people that are attempting to hijack a great religion and use it for their own purposes. Um, I, I think what's very important in, in the Muslim world is for the moderate voices, the vast majority, the moderate voices to speak out and condemn. Uh, to contemn, condemn the actions of these extremists. I also think it's important for the United States to be honest about its policies. We're going to have to change some of our policies, I think. Um, we have to understand how we're perceived in the world and, um, and, and, and to be honest about it. I think that's extremely important. But no, I don't see it as a conflict between the West or, or Islam particularly, but people are, some people are trying to turn, you know, turn it into one for their, their rather narrow motives here, I think. So... I think there's probably a lot of things we, we need to, we, I think we need to be maybe less supportive of some of the autocratic regimes that don't allow dissent in their, in their, um, in their countries, for example. We need to examine some of those policies, um, and, and um, I think that's, that's very important. On a broader level, um, I, I think also that, you know, exchanges, for example, um, 
You know, you've seen this in the university. I'm sure it's tougher to get foreign students in. People are intimidated by having to go through the process to get here. I think some of that's a little bit natural. We were traumatized on 9-11, so we kind of swing in the direction of being a bit more defensive. Things will, things will come back, and they'll come back more towards the center, I think, but we, we have to watch that closely. And then this thing I was talking about of, of our own students um, getting engaged in the world and learning the languages and, and, um, and developing the knowledge in some of, these, um, the, uh, some of these areas of Islamic studies, Middle Eastern studies, Near Eastern studies, South Asian studies, you know, you name it. Um, there's a number of ways, uh, things I think that we can be doing. There was a, yes, please. You had talked before about encouraging students to put pressure on the government to support these type of things, uh, the language studies, and I'm wondering, are there any specifics you can give as far as how to do that? Ideas you may have had about that? I would look at, um, I would look at the Terrorism Prevention Act uh, what's it called, the Terrorism Prevention, no, Intelligence Reform and Ter- Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004. Congress basically addresses this in, in that act. It's, it's 200 pages of legislation. You can find some language in there, some of its sense of Congress rather than creating hard programs with money behind it. But um, I think it's a question of, you know, talking to your um, to uni- university officials here in these areas on languages, for example, see what they know about the programs, connecting, writing letters to your representatives and to your senators to do that. I mean, let them know. If you basically say, look, you know, we've got a group of people here that, that are interested in doing this, maybe help us out with our educations uh, and financing of our educations in exchange, we'll study this language or that language. I think Congress would be more than willing to put up the money. In fact, may already have. You just have to find out what the programs are. Um, and then push for them to expand it. Um, this, is, this is a great, it, it, it's an investment that's in our country's interest, and I think most senators and representatives probably support it. Um, and I'm sure we've got some programs on the books now already. Just have to tap into them. We're substantially past than we normally would turn this off. And I don't want the whole group okay. to drift away because classes start here on the half hour. Very so good. What's happening is the next classes have just begun, so some people are having to leave to rush to that class. I know a number of the students are going to be meeting this afternoon with Mr. Hurley, so I, I don't feel like I'm denying you a chance. He'll be here for a few minutes uh, to talk to any of you. I want all of us, though, to thank you very much for coming out. for the work he's done on the commission. It was a terrific job, and thank you very much. Thanks to all of you, and really good luck to you in your futures. Keep moving forward. Thanks so much, Doug.